Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. Today's podcast message features Dr. Kurt Mackey, our guest speaker from Sky Valley Ministries 2022 Refresh Bible Conference. To learn more about Kurt and his ministries, please visit our website at svmin.com slash refresh2022. Wow, praise the Lord. Well, let you know that um, as I've gotten to know these wonderful worship leaders, great musicians a little bit, kind of at the after gatherings, the meals after our gatherings, they are the real deal. They love Jesus. They're, they are the same on stage, off stage. It's just a joy to be with brothers that, that love the Lord and use their gifts in profound ways and bless us. And, and they're continuing to walk with Jesus. And you can just tell that God is on them, using them. They're powerful. And so thank you, gentlemen, for just your worship, for your, for your spirit, and for your talent being used for the Lord. It's been a wonderful experience. Well, I'm excited to also introduce a friend here this morning. You actually met him last night in his work a little bit. Uh, my good friend Nick Greenwood, stand up, my friend, is with us. Nick is, he was, last night you saw him. In our discussion last night, we talked about the Greenwood motivation matrix on how to be first in the gospel as it comes back up as we live on mission. Nick was the one that came up with that paradigm. We've been using it in our materials, and so I'm proud to introduce him. He's a very smart guy, godly guy, great friend, and a fellow teammate with me. And so I'm just excited to have him here. He lives in Ontario somewhere along there, yeah, around there. And he kind of drove on over, so he'll be with us today and I'm excited to, to have him with us. He and I share, yeah, you can give him another clap. Yeah, it's good. So to help you understand where he and I come from, he and I serve in, that, in a missions organization. I've mentioned it briefly. In 1980 or so, some folks who were attending E.V. Free Fullerton, Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton, were interested in coming alongside churches and helping them get focused and resourced. They were spending time with Chuck Swindoll, and they, they essentially formed this organization called Church Resource Ministries, or shortened to CRM. And for decades, CRM has been an um, organization coming alongside churches, but over the seasons, over the decades, it's morphed into really a worldwide mission organization. There are over 600 missionaries, field staff in over 100 countries serving in three basic arms of the organization. The first one is called Interchange, and these are a group of folks that literally take vows of poverty they raise support, then they live at a very minimal level of support. They live amongst the poor in the distressed cities of the world, and they make disciples and they make leaders amongst the poorest of the poor. And they are a special group of folk. My, my colleague and I like to say, these are the, these are the deep end folks. <laughs> right? they, they, are, they are really swimming in the deep end of the pool. And we love them and we are proud of them to be part of the organization. A second group of folks are serving in, in the countries all over the world, speaking all kinds of languages, planting churches, and doing creative ministry to make new disciples, literally amongst the nations. And they're doing pioneering work and creative work to start movements of the gospel around the world. The third wing of the organization is called Church Next, where Nick and I work together. And in Church Next, there's a number of teams that are serving existing churches 
in the U.S. and around the world, helping them get focused back on mission to navigate even the changes we talked about yesterday morning. We talked about Christendom churches. We talked about attractional churches. We talked about missional churches. We help churches kind of navigate those changes to get them onto mission. And so Nick and I and all the folks in the organization, we are literally support-raising missionaries. We have all gone out amongst our friends and family and churches to raise support from 80 to 100 people that will support each of us, along with some churches and anybody else with big bank accounts. We love them, and they pour money into the organization on our behalf so we can do this ministry. I'm literally here because I've got partners around the country that believe in what we're doing through Novo to allow me to be with you. And I'm so thankful for those folks and we're so blessed by people. So as people give, kingdom work continues throughout the world. So Nick and I live in that world, we enjoy it. It's a challenge at times, it's a faith journey, but God is good and God has been faithful. And so it's a delight to be here. So Nick, thank you for being here this morning. What a delight. So let's just recap real quickly. Yesterday morning, we, we navigated the sociology of where the church is in North America. We talked about Christendom churches and attractional churches and, and missional churches, and many of you have given me great feedback to say, oh my goodness, that has helped me understand where my church is and why we're fussling and tussling as we're making the changes to, to navigate the new world that we're in. I'm glad that was helpful to put some context for what's happening and what's, what's emerging as we go forward. Last night, we, we looked at some theology. When Jesus says to come and follow me, what does that really mean and why? And we did a brief little excursus into the discovery Bible study method that we looked at late last night. And as I said to you, if you're more interested in learning how to do that, our folks at Novo can send a team to do some great training for you to explain how to do that, to really train you. Because as you go back to your home churches throughout the country, or around this area, God can use you with some of those tools. So if you're interested in that, see me or see Nick, and we'll help you navigate that and do that. This morning, I want to take us through, if we're going to become followers of Jesus, if we're going to become his disciples with his character, then how do we begin to appropriate that? And what biblical verses support the idea that he wants us to be transformed and to be changed? So we're going to unpack that this morning. And then tonight, we're going to look at evangelism in cross-cultural contexts because people from all over the world are now in our midst. And if we've been trained in one method to share our faith, it may not be working because we're working with folks now that come from different worldviews. And we're going to explore that this evening, and it'll be a great time, so I hope you'll come back tonight. But what a beautiful day the Lord has made. That pool's looking really good out there, but we're, we're going to focus, right? We're going to stay right here. So we'll get to that later. So I want to bring us to this. We're going to talk about a life of transformation. In Romans 8, 29, the scripture says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to notice the wording there, to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. So Paul is describing the Christian's future and purposes that we're to be shaped, we're to be conformed, we're to be molded into the likeness of Jesus. And that, my friends, is clearly an, an active process 
This is not a passive process. This is something that God is working at, and we are to join him in that journey to become transformed, to change and to grow, so that we actually are followers of Jesus, and if you will, we resemble Jesus in the world in which we live, work, and play. One has said it this way, that we are to be to Christ as an image is to the original. So what I'll be doing this morning is I'm distilling a lot of the great work from my former professor, Dr. Dallas Willard. I'm taking a lot of his teachings from his books and his entire course that I sat through and distilled it down for you in kind of one session, if you will. It's a lot there, and as you become curious, I hope, about these topics, there are plenty of resources and books and materials you can begin to dive into this deeper. Pastor Walt has got access to those connections as well. He'll, he'll send you in the right directions. My hope is this will pique your interest, and you'll say, yes, I, I wanna navigate some of those waters. I wanna see what God will do. I wanna grow in and be conformed more like Jesus. In Romans 12, 2, many of you are familiar with this verse. Paul says, to do not be conformed to this world, but to be, notice, transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that you may be able to discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul is asserting that followers of Jesus are not to live according to the value systems of the world, but that we're actually supposed to go undergo a metamorphosis, a transformation, a change, so that we literally live by a different agenda and a sensitivity to God's plan and purposes for our lives. We're not only to look different and behave different, but our very value systems become kingdom-minded and not earthly-minded. And that, is, friends, is a process that takes what's called a spiritual formation journey to undergo. That Greek word there, metamorpho, the metamorphosis, as it says there, talks about being transformed in such a way that it literally is an outward manifestation of inner change inside. It's very easy in our world to just drink the culture that we live in and the values become so much a part of, of who we are. And Jesus is saying, I've got a different kingdom, it's not of this world, and you are my disciples, you are my kingdom people, and I want you to reflect the heart of the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. But that's not an easy process, and it requires an intentional process. And that's what I wanna talk about this morning. Another interesting word in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says this, he says, My little children, for whom I'm again in the pain of childbirth, until notice, until Christ is literally formed in you. That's a, that's a transformational process, until Christ is formed in you. And Paul, as a pastor writing to these churches, he aches to see his people become like Jesus. And he knows, and of course, the churches in the New Testament are full of problems because they're full of sinners and they're all struggling. And Paul's writing to, to help them to navigate how to be formed more like Jesus. A great pastor, John Ortberg, I'm very fond of his, him and his writings, he said this. He said, to live such that Christ is formed in us means that Christ's followers are to live as if Jesus, notice this, held unhindered sway over our bodies to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place. 
to perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through our eyes, to think what Jesus would think and feel, what he would do, and therefore to do what he would do. How do we live our lives, whether we're musicians or pastors or executives or teachers or medical professionals or whatever field, whatever world we're in, how would we live our lives as Jesus would live our life in our place, making our income, living in our neighborhood, working where we work, retired where we're retired, however that works? That's what Paul is encouraging us to become, little Christ's wherever we live, work, and play. And so Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he says, have nothing to do with profane myths and old wives' tales. He says, train yourself in godliness. For while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And I want you again to notice that word, I've underlined it there, it's, it's train yourself. Now that imagery, I mean training, I mean that requires focus. That, that, that's, a, that's the image of like of athletes. You know, we're in the middle of the Olympics and these folks spend years literally training, working at building muscle, focus and skills. It is an intentional process, not just a willy-nilly one that just happens, I hope I make it, I hope I do well. They focus. My niece right now is a competitive swimmer. And I'm amazed at the level of training this young gal goes through as a senior in high school to get into a top school. She's going to go to Kentucky next year, which is one of the best swim teams for girls in the entire country. She made it. She swims hours per day. She eats calories per day like you wouldn't believe. And she burns it off in just a few hours because she is, but she is focused and she is training. And you see the training show up because she blows everybody out of the pool. And I'm so proud as Uncle Kirk. Super fun. But I think about her when I think about this idea of train yourself. Paul's talking to Timothy about, look, you've got to go through an intentional spiritual formation process with the same kind of focus and energy that you would if you were training for a sport, or to play music, or to whatever it is, whatever skill set we are to be developing. John Ortberg said this, he said, spiritual transformation is not a matter of just trying harder, but of training wisely. And this morning I wanna give you some tools for training wisely. So, we grow in the spiritual life Literally by well-directed, and I want you to get this, by, by literally effort. Dallas Willard would often say this haunting phrase. It always would rattle my cage because it sounded so counterintuitive. But he said, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And it took me a while to figure out what he's saying. But we've alluded to that the other day, that we, be, we, are, we cannot be saved because of our good works. But we do good works because we're saved. Because we've been given grace, now we are to undergo a process by the power of the Holy Spirit and us leaning into what the Spirit wants to do. By training, we can become the kind of people that reflect the heart of Jesus. We're not trying to earn our way into heaven. It's because we're going to heaven. This is what the King calls us to be like and to do. Does that make sense? I want to get that you know, in the right place. 
You can't earn salvation, that's given by grace. But to become a, a mature follower of Jesus is a process we enter into. And so Dr. Willard would give us a model, he called it the V-I-M model, VIM, which I love that because VIM and vigor is kind of fun for me. And the V-I-M model talks about three conditions for spiritual growth. The first one, the V stands for, the idea of literally having a vision of where it is you want to go. It's the idea that I really do want the kingdom of God more manifested in me. I want to be more and more like Jesus. I want my character to be more like Jesus. I want to be generous like Jesus. I want to be loving like Jesus. I want to understand spiritual power like Jesus. I want to reflect all of him in my world. And so I have goals for my character. I want to get rid of my temper. I want to get rid of my lust. I want to get rid of my greed. I want to get rid of whatever it is that God's speaking to us. I have goals to shape my character. I want to be different. I'm tired of dragging around this old world in my soul. I want to learn to live by God's power and to do the thing that Jesus would do. That's the vision, and if we're going to be spiritual disciples, we actually have a, have a vision for that, a focus, and a, and a set of saying, that's where I want to go. Next part of the model is the idea of, of intention. I actually am going to engage my will. Because if it's a vision without a will, it's just a dream with no action. And as a a friend of mine who runs a mission in Guatemala says in his book, dreams are cheap. <laughs> because dreams without a, a plan never materialize. They never actually happen. So if you have a character goal, I want to be different in this area. I want this part of my sinful nature to be eradicated, but we don't actually have the intention to do anything with it. It's just a pipe dream. It won't happen. So vision then intention, I'm actually going to fulfill that vision. I actually then have to have the third part of the model, which is the idea of having some means to accomplish it. And for our purposes here, we're gonna talk about spiritual disciplines as, as bodily habits that we engage in to literally shape our character to be more like Jesus. We're gonna unpack those in a few moments. And so the idea is this, if we're gonna master life with the master of life, then we have to follow Jesus literally into his practices. Because when you look throughout the scriptures carefully, you'll realize that Jesus practiced spiritual disciplines. That he actually learned to listen and be filled up in the power of the Spirit and did his ministry in the power of the Spirit. And he would practice disciplines so that his life and focus continued to stay deep on track with the mission the Father gave him. So in other words, if we're going to be like Jesus, we literally have to do the things that Jesus did. And it sounds simple. It's like, well, that kind of makes sense. But so often, we don't actually engage the practices or the processes. So I want to help unpack those this morning with you. So ask the question, so how did Jesus literally spend his time? Like, what did he do day to day? How did Jesus prepare for ministry? And it's fascinating to watch. So read the scriptures, read the gospels with those lenses, and some new things will begin to emerge. 
See, we're going to follow examples that are set by Jesus. We're going to rely on him now to be with us, and we're going to enter this way by experimentation. See, the spiritual disciplines are actually these behaviors that are going to feel awkward at first. When you first learn to ride a bike, it's really awkward. It's wobbly. They even have to put training wheels on, right? Now, some of you were so good with balance, you didn't need training wheels, but there are still moments where we have to struggle and wobble and wiggle a bit because it's a new behavior. When babies are learning to walk, they have a vision and the intention, and they get up and they fall down and they wibble wobble. It's not easy, but eventually they master those processes. The challenge for us as adults is we don't like to be out of control. We don't like to be... We don't like to be incompetent, basically. And so we try some of these disciplines, and they feel awkward at first, and we don't like the feeling that we're not being successful, and it's easy for us to say, ah, I'm not doing this anymore. Children and young people, they're just real, they don't care if they fall over. They don't care if they don't do it right at first. But we adults, we like to look like everything's cool, and I'm in control. But I would welcome you into these disciplines, these habits. They'll feel awkward at first. They'll feel strange. But they'll shape us in ways that are very profound. The habits of Jesus. See, Jesus literally practiced solitude and secrecy and service and study. We're going to look at these more, but he literally did these things all the time. The habits of Paul as well. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, Paul says to Timothy, we saw this verse earlier, I'll say it again, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Training yourself, see again, there it is, training yourself to be godly. In 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 11, he said, you, however, know all about my teaching, and notice, my way of life. Paul was practicing these habits And he wants the the folks in the various churches to not only know the doctrine as Paul would teach it, but to understand and live into Paul's way of life as he's trying to emulate Jesus' way of life. And we as disciples in 2022, we get to emulate these ways of life as well. He says, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, endurance, even persecutions. How did Paul handle persecutions? As he practiced the spiritual disciplines, he was able to live as a follower of Jesus under those persecutions and sufferings and not lose his peace, if you will. It's by the spiritual disciplines we can live like that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this. In verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is very serious about training his body and his soul so that he might not be disqualified. So, are we willing to say, follow me as I follow Christ? Are we willing to say, Lord, I want to follow Jesus in the habits that Jesus followed in the kingdom of God? So, the spiritual disciplines 
are, the, are these habits, again, that, that Jesus followed and the earliest friends in the New Testament followed. And they were picked up and have been used by followers of Jesus throughout the generations, throughout the ages. In reality, these are nothing new. They've been around for centuries. But for many of us in the evangelical world in the 20th and 21st century, somehow these have gotten lost, or we've only learned a couple of them, and I want to give us a further breadth of what can be. But I want you to realize this, that Jesus and his disciples, they weren't monks. They didn't overemphasize. They didn't disappear for years on end. They, they did these habits while they were doing ministry, while they were living their everyday life. They didn't overemphasize the disciplines, but they didn't underemphasize them either. So let me give you a definition this morning of what a discipline is. And a discipline is this. It's, in essence, an activity within our power that enables us to accomplish what we can't do by direct effort, okay? I can't, I mean, as a guitar player, I wanted to play guitar. I was 10 years old, and my dad let me use his great big uh, guitar at the time. It was a big dreadnought. It felt like it was almost as tall as me at the time. And there I sat, and I wanted to play it, but, but there's no way I'm going to be able to actually accomplish that unless I begin to try and work on these little basic things, strengthening my hands. I had to learn to build up some calluses. I had to learn some basic chords. I had to learn all of these little steps along the way that I can't do on my, I can't just play guitar until I begin to engage small and focused disciplines, and over time, it comes together. Even still, my wife hates this, but I actually take an unplugged guitar, electric guitar, sit on the couch, and when I'm watching a movie or TV, I'm doing mindless scales, and she's like, stop, honey. My wife can hear an unplugged electric guitar through three doors in three different rooms far away. She can hear that, and it drives her absolutely crazy. But if I can get away with it, I try, I, but I'm literally just drilling into my fingers, into my nervous system scales so that in the moment, if Bruce or anybody goes, hey, key of E, go, I can actually make something happen on the spot. But I, it's the practice behind the scenes that allows the moment when it needs to shine to take place. Make sense? I mean, these folks have been practicing for years, right? Scales are no fun, up and down, back and forth. It's no fun, but boy, it allows you to do things in a moment, in a trio, in a band, that you could never do just by wishing. It's the drilling behind the scene. Same thing happens in sports. Same thing happens with anything we really want to master. We practice behind the scenes so we can do what's required in the moment. How am I going to be loving to that neighbor who's cussing me out because the tree branch fell on their fence or something, right? How am I going to not respond in anger? It's when I'm literally working on disciplines behind the scene so that in the moment when I have to show up and be like Jesus, I've actually formed my heart and soul to be there. Make sense? Because my natural self is going to say other stuff that's not good. But if I'm praying and wrestling with my soul and I'm practicing disciplines that allow me to be patient and long-suffering, in the moment of the crisis, I can actually be Christ-like. Disciplines allow us to do things we can't do by direct effort. 
Jesus said in Matthew 26, watch and pray that you may avoid temptation. You are willing in spirit, but notice, but your flesh is weak. It is the flesh that is the problem because it's trained to do stuff that's not godly. In Joshua 1.8, he said, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you'll be able to make your way prosperous and then you'll have success. This idea of transforming our minds and meditating on the scripture so that those truths sink deep in us and they emerge in the moment when it's needed. So grace and discipline, they go together. They go together. And the effect of discipline, as we've been alluding to, I've got some sports illustrations up on the screen. In this season of Olympics, they allow you to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Kobe Bryant, back in the day, great ball player. I got to see him once live. It was quite a treat. It's very sad that he's gone from the earth. But when he was, it was amazing when it's like two seconds left and the Lakers need to win, it was get the ball to Kobe. But why was that? He would do that shot where he could float across the key sideways. Like this is, the physics of it is wild. He would float sideways and shoot and somehow skyhook that sucker in and swish at the buzzer beater. How did he be able to, how did they know to get, how did that work? Because Kobe would practice that shot a thousand times a day. Even I've heard stories where practice was over, everybody's gone, the lights are off in the gym, and he's still there working on that shot over and over. So in the moment of need, boom, out it comes. And it looks so effortless. Well, a lot of effort went into that behind the scenes. So sports and art, we practice behind the scenes so that we can deliver in the moment. The same thing happens in the spiritual disciplines. We practice behind the scenes so that in the moment we have to show up and be Jesus, especially in a stressful situation, we can do that because we've trained to do what Jesus would do. So these disciplines, they're, they're ways of learning. And they are the issues of the heart for being a disciple. So again, as we learn to walk with Jesus and practice his practices, we can literally, how, do we, how does a truck driver live like Jesus? How does a school teacher live like Jesus? How does an elected official, how do we live our lives in whatever fields and occupations, wherever we live, work, and play, how does it show up that Jesus emerges out of us in the moment because we've practiced behind the scenes? See, I'm learning to live my life in the kingdom of God if Jesus were me. And we're learning to lead our life as Jesus would live it. So as we looked at last night briefly, again, the gospel, is it, is it just about getting into heaven? Oh, it's about so much more. We talked last night about the idea of literally following Jesus is part of the gospel, preparing ourselves for the new heavens and the new earth. As I said last night, we're, Paul says we are, we're preparing to judge the angels. And as we really unpack that, what does that mean? We're going to be literally reigning in a future kingdom, in, the, in a new heavens and a new earth. So who we're becoming now matters into the future. This is all training time for the big act 
if you will. And it's partly about reclaiming our vocation then as image bearers of God. So the heart of the gospel is this. It's about trusting Jesus. It's more than just trusting something he said. It's actually trusting Jesus, which then leads to discipleship. That's on the next slide, my friend. He's got it there. Here it comes. There you go. Trusting Jesus, trusting in him and trusting in his words, trusting what he says life is all about. When we trust him, when we believe him, we follow him. And that leads to discipleship. So we're learning how to do what Jesus did and what he taught. We begin to learn how to handle the ordinary events of life with the principles and the power of God's kingdom. So then we learn how to run a business as Jesus would run a business. The world system says you get what you can get, and if you can smash somebody else, that's great. There's all kinds of pressure to be unethical, to cut corners, all kinds of things. How would Jesus run a business? That's an interesting question. How would Jesus behave and act in a difficult committee meeting? As I work with churches around the country, I'm so appalled often at what happens in the business meetings of churches where this is supposed to be the kingdom of God expression on earth, where, where people who are supposed to be followers of Jesus and the way they go at each other in the meetings is absolutely horrendous because we have not practiced these kingdom habits. We don't, bring, we don't bring these habits and this character into these meetings. We, we are no different than worldly meetings where we're at each other's throats. And I'm saying, oh, no, 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 no. How do we handle a difficult business meeting? How do we handle a family dispute in a way that still honors people even when they're getting in our grill? Remember, they're still image bearers of God. They're still made in his image. How do we honor that and love that and don't get hooked into all that? How do we not lose our peace in the middle of a difficult family dispute? How do we love our enemies when our cousins or our aunts or uncles are in a dispute? How do we, that, this is the disciplines allow us to show up like Jesus in the middle of all that? How do we live through a political dispute and act like Jesus? I'm saddened by the, how the church has not shown up well in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, the politics of our culture and the followers of Jesus, people are saying we are not looking very different. We're not looking like Jesus in all of this. I have very strong views about all of that stuff, but I also know I belong to a kingdom that's beyond all of it. And that's where my allegiance has to be. As I work with brothers and sisters around the world that are under incredibly difficult and repressive regimes, they're learning how to live as Jesus followers when the, when the times are not good for that expression. And they're learning how to be Jesus and love people in the midst of very difficult political situations. I have a lot to learn from them. How do we live through political dispute and actually look like Jesus? George Eldon Ladd said this. If you're interested in some of the 
the deep theological reflection about the kingdom, I think he's done one of the best job in the last hundred years of explaining the kingdom, the now and the coming of the kingdom. George Eldon Ladd, he was a professor at Fuller Seminary, he said the kingdom of God is concerned with the evils that bring misery and suffering on the physical level. He's saying in these principles is implicit, now be careful this term, but he says there is a social gospel element because we want the reign of God to live in the lives of his people. We must be concerned with the total man, with the conquest of evil in whatever form it manifests itself. The church is the people of God, the instruments of the kingdom of God in conflict with evil. As we learn to follow Jesus and the disciplines become part of us, we literally get to be a blessing to this world in difficult places, loving people into God's kingdom and making sure that that evil doesn't run rampant in our culture. It really shows up in us, as we've said over and over, being a blessing to this world. I long to see God's people serve the lost, the needy, the broken, and to step into places where there's injustice because we're pointing to a a coming and a now kingdom. See, Jesus had a radical concern for lost humanity. And as we put ourselves more into the spiritual disciplines, God will raise up in us a heart for the lost. Because God, remember, is a seeking God. As soon as there was transgression in the garden, God goes looking for Adam and Eve. The mission has begun. He's a seeking God. He wants his children found and brought home. Luke 15 is one of my favorite sections of Scripture because in Luke 15 are the three parables that clearly delineate the heart of the Father the first, of course, the first parable in Luke 15 is the, lost, is the lost sheep. And then we move to the lost coin. And then it's the parable of the lost sons. And I say that because we always say it's the prodigal son. It's really about the lost sons because they're both lost. And all of those parables were aimed at the Pharisees who were all religious and uptight. Sometimes I call them the overchurched. Because they, they thought they had it all together and they, were, they would look down their nose at anybody who didn't live like them. And Jesus says, look, the heart, is, the heart of God is for lost people. And I love, again, it's like the prodigal son who messed everything up gets welcomed home. And then he challenges the older son, will you come in and celebrate? And it leaves it open. The text says we don't know whether that son will actually come in and have a party or not. But that's what he wants for us. And what I really love about that whole section of Scripture is the first two verses of chapter 15 of Luke. Because in the first two verses, you find that Jesus is being around people who are lost, and you'll notice it just says in the first two verses, in essence, they liked being with Jesus. Lost people liked being around Jesus. And then I'm challenged, do lost people like being around me? Huh. Am I winsome and interesting, and do I seem to have a kingdom spirit about me, or or are they repulsed by me in some way? I'm curious. Do lost people like being around church people? They love being around Jesus. And this is what makes the Pharisees so upset. And that's what launches into those three parables 
to show the heart of the Father because the Father loves lost people and wants them found. And will the Pharisees catch it or not? I want to be the kind of person that loves like the heart of the Father. In Jesus, George Ladd says, in Jesus, God has taken the initiative to seek out the sinner, to bring lost men and women to the blessing of his reign. He was, in short, the seeking God. And if God is a seeker of lost people, then I want my heart to beat for the lost as well. I want my life to exude the kingdom that, that lost people say, wow, there's something in you that I want and I need. And instead of getting mad at lost people and all of their sin and all of their craziness, I want the heart of the Father to develop in me so that I have compassion for the lost. And the habits will help us become those kind of people. So the spiritual disciplines, they're literally habits. They are processes, they're tools that help us live like Jesus in the kingdom. They are about the body because the body and the spirit actually affect each other. Willard used to say this over and over. He would say, my body is my personalized power pack. I love that image. We have this body, we have this power pack. It's in our bodies where we get to actually have dominion and reign in the physical world. And our bodies have, are supposed to operate certain ways, and they actually are designed to do things automatically. But because we live in a fallen world, we actually have to train those bodies to respond in kingdom and godly ways. Our bodies take on a life of their own, and now we need it to respond in kingdom ways. And so, disciplines help us do that. Notice Peter. When Peter's with Jesus for three years, in fact, Peter's like, I'm going to be with you to the end, Jesus. I am sold out. I'm going all the way. And as soon as he was tired and a little bit stressed out, sitting by the fire, Jesus is getting, you know, the business by the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And all of a sudden, his physical body gives out and he denies Jesus three times immediately. How does that happen? Three years with Jesus. I love you. I'm going all the way. Little stress and pressure. Boom. Don't know that guy. <laughs> It was in his jaws. Little isolation, little weariness, little emotional angst, little fear, little anger, little shame. And all of a sudden, Peter denies. I, it's the disciplines that help us to be able, under pressure, to hang in there for the kingdom. So, people have asked, well, then, why isn't there like a section of Scripture that like has all the habits listed out, you know, and kind of a checklist and so forth. There's no chapter in Romans on spiritual disciplines for the same reason that there's no chapter on breakfast. It's just what you do. It's assumed. So you have to look carefully for the habits of Jesus and the new disciples and even Paul and the others. And if you look carefully, those habits are actually in the Scriptures. Now, the disciplines, again, are not righteousness. They're practices. They are tools to help us put off the old person and to put off or put on rather than new. I was reading Colossians chapter 3 again. If you want a chapter of Scripture that gives a great vision of what it is this transformation process looks like, I would encourage you to read Colossians chapter 3 like every day for a month. Print it out. 
Put it on the mirror, and as you're getting ready in the morning, read through that and let that just wash over you over and over. This is the vision of what it looks like to put off the old and to put on the new. And if we're going to do that, if we're literally going to take that seriously, if we're literally going to put off the old and put on the new, then the disciplines will help us do that. So the, our bodies are good things. We just have to make them our servants. And so these disciplines are literally bodily disciplines. They are habits that we do to our bodies to help us become and respond as kingdom people. Now, as we talked about, when you start them, they're often awkward or sometimes difficult. I don't recommend you jump into all of them at once. Don't expect success in all of them at once. But they are habits, they're lifestyles, they're patterns, they're rhythms for ways of connecting with God. So what's interesting is this. Willard would say this. He would say, you know, we're so soaked in our world, in sensuality and in consumerism today, in our Western, modern, postmodern world. But he would ask the question, are we really better off? Is this really the good life? And if we think so, then we won't really engage these disciplines. But, but for those of us that realize that all these things of the world, all these perspectives, all this sensuality and materialism, if it leaves us empty and raw, and we realize that's really not life, then we'll begin to say, Lord, there's another way. I want to be a kingdom person. And you will engage and go through the process of being transformed. So, these are classical spiritual disciplines. I'm going to share them here in just a moment. They're classical because they've been central to experiential Christianity for all these generations. Practiced by Jesus, practiced by Paul, the Desert Fathers, Augustine, St. Benedict, Merton, now and these people throughout the centuries that can teach us so much about these habits. So here's the classical spiritual disciplines. I've broken them into two. The first is a list of spiritual disciplines of what's called abstinence, which means these are ways we pull away, we refrain from some things so we can disentangle some spiritual problems. And the first, if you will, now in one sense, they're all equal, but this one's the first among equals. Can I say it that way? They're all important, but if you're going to start, this is probably the place to start. Start with solitude. Literally, intentionally getting away and letting us just be quiet so that our souls can hear the small voice of the Father. And that sounds so simple, and yet in our culture is unbelievably difficult. You've got distractions in our pockets. We've got, you know, right? Noise and feedback and response constantly. We are constantly surrounded by noise and Netflix and television and music and all these amazing, they're good things, but we are constantly just overwhelmed with input. And it's fascinating how when I was pastoring people, I, I just can't hear the voice of God. And I would say, have you ever thought about turning off the radio? And I get it. When I get into a car, like, I am like, I have a finger that just goes boom, on goes the radio. Like, I just do that. Right? I just... And I'm like, okay, a discipline is to actually drive and be quiet. 
And that's hard for me, again, because I want input. My brain loves stimulation and input. But to actually go be quiet, to sit in my backyard for 20 minutes and literally just sit there, no phone, no Bible, no agenda, no news, no nothing, just be with the Father and let the Father love me, that begins to do something in my soul. Solitude is a great place to start. And it will do something to you. It's not easy because we're so used to being overwhelmed with stimulation. So try it. And then silence added on to it is literally not speaking. I did an experience of silence for 24 hours in this course with Dr. Willard. He actually told us, okay, starting at noon today, you will be quiet until noon tomorrow. And now we're off to lunch was super weird to sit across the table in these big long benches and have lunch with my colleagues, right? And suddenly we have to communicate with no voice. So our eyes are darting around. It's really awkward to stare each other face to face and to not be able to say anything. I couldn't wait to get out of there fast enough. And then I spent the afternoon at the Huntington Library and Gardens. And I walked up to the ticket, you know, I didn't even want to speak there, so I just, put, you know, one, one ticket, and, you know, I, I didn't speak. And for the next three hours, I walked the gardens. And because I'm a preacher-teacher by training, and I live by talking, right? That's just what I do. I coach. I, I'm always talking. Shutting my mouth for hours upon hours, it was like my brain was screaming at me to get stuff out of my mouth. It felt like pressure in the back of my head. I felt I wanted to scream and yell, and I just said, no, be quiet. And I fought with it for hours. And then what interesting thing happened about 5 o'clock that evening, it was almost like all those thoughts and all that energy finally said, I guess we're not getting out, so it all slid back down my brain and disappeared down my spine somewhere. Because I don't know, all of a sudden, my brain just relaxed, and I heard the birds in a new way. I noticed the colors on the trees. And I, suddenly, the creation kind of came alive to me because I was literally not speaking. And I really could hear God's love and voice as he spoke. By the time 24 hours had passed, I didn't want to speak. It was amazing. We came back after the morning and we were having him teach us and nobody was speaking and then after lunch break the, the fast of none of speaking was broken and we were reluctant to begin to use our voices it was a beautiful thing the challenge would be solitude and silence can we can we literally just like be quiet silence our voices and let the spirit speak to us fasting there's a whole world of fasting from food fasting from media fasting from good things in our life so that we can literally feast upon the lord is how that works now don't go jumping in and fast for you know 20 days starting tomorrow you might just try one meal and just see, and when a hunger pang starts, go back to prayer. Lord, I need you. I'm going to feast on you. 
Now, I do have friends that have actually taken longer fasts, multiple days, weeks. I know a gentleman who took a 40-day fast. He got ready for it. He kind of worked his way up to it. And he literally told me amazing spiritual breakthroughs happened in his soul. In fact, when, when uh, Nick and I, we, when we joined Novo, we literally meet with the president of the organization, who, by the way, is a funded missionary as well. He raises his own support like all of us. And as he stood before us, he pulled out his notes from his 40-day fast before he took on the role of being the leader of this new mission organization. And as he goes through page after page of struggling, and on day 13, I felt this, and then I felt that, and then all of a sudden the spiritual breakthroughs began to come down. It was like God's kingdom just fell upon him. And he knew the direction we had to go. He had spiritual strength. He said it was the most amazing experience. And friends, you can only experience this stuff because you've got to try it. So try a meal. Try a day without food and see what God will do. Work your way up. There's all kinds of books and resources about fasting. We think we need food every single few hours. We, we don't at all. And God can do some amazing things in fasting. Frugality is the idea of literally saying, I don't need the best and the greatest all the time. I'm not going to be beholden to the God of the upgrade. I'm going to be satisfied I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live at a certain level because I'm not going to buy into every needful thing. I don't have to be the latest and the greatest. I don't have to have every label on my shirt. I don't need to advertise who I'm beholden to. These are the disciplines of frugality. Secrecy is a fascinating one. I, I, when I was at that retreat with Dallas Willard, he had a spiritual director, and she was working us over in some of these disciplines, and she shared her own story about secrecy. She's a famous spiritual director. She's written lots of books. She speaks every weekend in churches all around the country. And here's her discipline. When she's on stage on Sunday morning, she's preaching and teaching, and then she's signing autographs and signing books, and everybody, you're so amazing, and you're so great, and she gets all the accolades. And then her habit, her discipline, is to fly home Sunday night back to Los Angeles to get up on Monday morning, put on jeans and a ratty sweatshirt, pull her hair back in a ponytail, do not do anything else, and show up at a homeless shelter and pack clothing and give it to the homeless. And nobody knows who she is. As a discipline to counter the pride that can easily come when you're always told how great you are. So she literally serves food and socks and packs clothing behind the scenes when nobody knows to shape her soul, to not get caught up in the accolades and all the blessings, right? I was like, wow, that's amazing. She's in touch with her soul. She, she knows where, the, where some of the temptations are. And so she models her life in behaviors that counters that. Pastors, we struggle with this all the time. We're, you know, if you're in a church where they actually like you, you often get, oh, great sermon, thank you so much, pastor, stuff like that. If you're in a church they don't like you, that's really difficult. But if they like you, you often get told this and all this great stuff. And so there were times when it's good for a pastor or a leader to literally pick up the chairs when nobody sees it, when everybody's gone. To serve the Lord in a way that nobody else notices. You don't get any credit, if you will. Only the Father sees when people would come to my church and they would want to like jump on the board immediately because they were on the board of this church, and I'd say, well, great, here's a broom. Why don't you start serving? We'll see if you've got the servant's heart first. 
It's good for us leaders and followers of Christ to serve. Remember when Jesus said, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. So go do some practices, serve in some ways when nobody sees. Just the Father. It's good for your soul. Disciplines of engagement are the opposite. These are habits where we actually do stuff. Instead of withdrawing from stuff, we're engaging stuff. Disciplines of study, literally of coming to worship services. That one we usually do pretty well. Literally having celebrations to, to literally celebrate the goodness of God. There are places in the world where I've, I end my course teaching on the, the discipline of celebration, and they really struggle with it because to them, God is serious. Church is serious business. We're not supposed to smile. We're not supposed to be happy. We're, this is serious. And the idea that you would actually gather and have a party and say, God is good, let the joy flow, is like no way. I actually asked these pastors one time, I said, if you were to preach on all the feasts of the Old Testament, where they were encouraged to come, bring all the offerings and have all this, and have all this food and all this stuff, what would it be like? He says, oh, we'd get fired. Really? Wow. Again, sometimes our theology needs to come back and be biblical, right? The discipline of, death, of, of celebration. I think our churches need to be filled with joy. I actually believe that there's eternal joy in the Godhead. Father, we sung holy, holy, holy. Blessed Trinity in the three persons of who God is. There's incredible joy. In fact, we're now we're learning in brain science that our brains were made for joy. So Christians ought to be the most joy-filled, joyful people on planet Earth, reflecting the heart of God. And disciplines of celebration can encourage that. So instead of that being frivolous, that's a discipline of the kingdom. Service, prayer, being serious with fellowship. Confession we struggle with, we're so individualistic, we don't actually want to share the dark stuff of our lives, but that's an amazing discipline. Find a couple trusted people where they can really let loose what's really going on. They can pray for you and love you because in the confession comes the healing. When things come out of darkness, then becomes the healing. Giving is a discipline. To literally say, Lord, I'm putting you first, which is why the church, we have to do this every week. It's a great discipline. It's a great habit to put God first. And I have lots of theology and thinking about that. It was the topic I dreaded the most as a pastor. I hated talking about money. And by the time I searched all the scriptures about it, by the time I left my ministry, it was my favorite topic. Because the Bible talks more about resources and giving and, and how we live our lives with our stuff than any other topic. Because it's where we really live. And giving as a discipline, it stretches us. It, it breaks the grip of materialism in our lives. It puts the Lord first in practical ways. It breaks our idolatry. There's so much going on there. Such a great discipline. So these disciplines of abstinence, they, they free us from the hurtful entanglements. As John Ingram, a friend of mine, said, abstinence consists as much of opening oneself up as closing oneself off. Abstinence functions much like airing out the house before receiving desired company. I love that image. When you, when you use these disciplines, you're, you're like airing out your soul. You're, you're getting ready for company, and you're getting things fresh. 
in disciplines of engagement, we're choosing to participate in activities that nurture our souls. They strengthen us for the ongoing faith journey. And they're designed to provide avenues for connecting with God and other people and conversing honestly with them in order to love and to be loved. So as I said, these are new behaviors, so don't tackle them all at once. Some of you already do. Some of you do Bible study. You might do worship. You might do um, some solitude. So try try fasting. Try, Try some other ones. Especially in areas where you realize, and this is an area of growth for me. I want to make, I want to be somebody who doesn't have to have the last word. I want, I want to actually tame my tongue per the book of James. Then silence is going to be really important for you. Spend part of your day now and then without speaking as a way to shape and curb our tongues. You see how it works? Practice, try them. They will not be easy but they're worth engaging. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.